The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. You are indeed glorious. And there's something, we all have different musical tastes and instrument tastes, but there's something right about letting loose in declaring you are glorious. There's something very right about exulting in that, about rejoicing in it, about declaring it out loud in a big voice with full instrumentation and and a, a loudness to it. Which is not to say we can't say it quietly and and subtly, but there's something that should be proclaimed, exclaimed, you are glorious, Father, Son, and Spirit. We would not know this if you did not sovereignly decide to reveal it to us. We would stumble around and grasp from looking at nature, grasp some inkling of of a might behind it. But we would not know the scope of your glory if you had not decided to reveal it to us, particularly in the wisdom and the power of God to save. You reveal your glory to us in a tremendous tremendous humbling in tremendous stooping of the almighty taking on flesh of the one who through whom all things were made becoming contained by matter the nose and fingers hair that's, that's stunning. And very purposeful because the purpose in it shows even more of your glory. You did that so as to die on behalf of your enemies. Glory. And even more so, you didn't just display a wonderful humility. That actually accomplished something. It broke the power of sin over us. Your people, redeemed by your might, by your choice, by your initiative. It is by grace we have been saved, not of ourselves. Glorious. And so we are left to just say it. You are indeed glorious. Praise to your glorious name. And you, this God, as Revelation 1 talks about you, who you are the king over all of the kings. You are the one who made everything. You're the one who's going to come to fix it all and redeem it. You have stooped to love us, to rescue us, to free us from our sin by your blood. Lord, just say thank you. And I pray, Lord, that you would stoop here in this time now as we, we come to the end of 1 Corinthians. I pray that you would condescend again today to speak to us in language that we can understand. I pray you would, you would open up the, the Bible, a book with words in English, and most of us read English fairly well. But I pray you would open it up. And help us to understand some things. Particularly what you mean by just a few simple words where we'll focus our attention this morning. What you mean by them and what you mean for them to be in our lives. Would you help us to understand? Would you stir us to to embrace these words and what they're about and to walk after you and live as your people here on this earth? 
do that, I pray, Lord. Would you remove from us any any barriers that we face right now, whether it be simple distractions, maybe the room's too cold or too hot, or the person sitting next to me is, is too loud or disruptive, or, or my problems are, are screaming at me from this morning, and I know they're going to be there this afternoon. Would, would you remove those barriers and, and include in that, Lord, the sin that maybe we haven't faced and dealt with and repented of? Cause us to deal with that now. Would you remove the barriers that would inhibit or hinder in some way what you want to do in our hearts, men and women, boys and girls here in this room? I ask you to have your way with us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Spirit of God, would you open up the word to us, teach us, shape us, conform us to the image of Christ for his glory and for our good. That's what I ask you to do. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our coming King. Amen. We give our attention this morning to the last half of 1 Corinthians 16. As I said, we're here at the end of the book. This, this is the end, the final section. And as we saw last week in the beginning of this chapter... We're going to see it again this week. There are a few kind of random odds and ends that we're going to close off, and I need to touch on some things. Before, at the beginning of the chapter, we saw Paul answering a question in brief about a collection that he'd mentioned. The church in Corinth had, had received some word from him about a collection to take up on behalf of the saints in Jerusalem, and Paul's answer to their question reveals to us some points about the one body of Christ. The, the one people from all over the globe that God has called out from all of the peoples, the nations, to gather them together and make one people. And we saw some things there in that first section of chapter 16. Particularly, we saw our obligation to that one body, even if it's different than us, and in little segments, completely different than us. Jew and Gentile, people from all different countries and all different ethnic backgrounds, all different cultural backgrounds are in one body, obligated to each other. Paul talks about how God has prospered Corinth and then tells them, commands them to give to Jerusalem to kind of show that, that mutual obligation. He could have just prospered Jerusalem directly, but he didn't. So as to make the point, I give to you so that you will give to them, you are one. There's one body, one people. And extending that one body out into the nations to call in those ones, there's a cost associated with that. We saw that also. There's a cost. Like Paul and Timothy, we're obviously different than them, but we are like them in some ways. We are called to be a part of the work of the Lord along with Paul and along with Timothy. And that has a cost to it. Remember, we refer back to chapter 4, where Paul calls us to be imitators of him and imitators of Timothy, modeling Paul for us and laying aside our lives so as to see the word of Christ extended out into all the nations. That's some of what we gleaned from the text last week. And this week here we are at the end, and there's more to glean. Some random things, but also one main point, really one final call to the church that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. But as I read the passage, I'm going to then go back through it to, to catch some of the smaller points before focusing in on, on the main nugget that I'm after this morning. So let me read the passage. This is going to be chapter 16, verse 12, all the way through the end of the book. 1 Corinthians 16, 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos... I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas 
and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians. The passage begins with another one of those now concerning phrases that we've seen so many times. Paul's turning to address another little question they've asked. Essentially, when are we going to see Apollos again? Apollos, you may recall, was one of the influential people in the Corinthian church. He had not planted the church, but had been very helpful in building it up. And the problem was that the church had divided, you'll recall, into factions, some following Apollos and Paul and others. Well, they wanted to see Apollos again. And probably, we can assume, Apollos, knowing the problem of factionalism there, said, Timothy's going as Paul's representative. I'm not going to go with him and show up and create that problem again, me alongside Timothy, I'll go later, some other time. I want to see them, I love them, but I'm not not going to stir up that pot. That's probably why Apollos doesn't go. And Paul tells them that so that they don't blame him for holding Apollos back. 13 and 14 then, those are the verses I'm going to lean on, so I'm going to skip over them right now and move on to point out how another man that we've already met, Stephanus, surfaces again. We met him back in chapter 1. He's the one that Paul recalled baptizing. He hadn't remembered baptizing very many folks, but he knew Stephanus because Stephanus was, as the text says, one of the first converts in the whole area, one of the first people to come to the Lord in Corinth. And his purpose for bringing him up here at the end, probably because he's seen him, he's visited, we see in verse 17, but his purpose in bringing him up here is to kind of reinforce Stephanus in his position of authority in the church. Stephanus and his household are, Paul's trying to kind of lift them up in the eyes of the church here. He says, I urge you, brothers, these guys, probably referring to some of the people in, in maybe some of his servants, some of his extended family perhaps, these were some of the first converts, and they have matured in faith over time. They live before you as people who are laying down their lives for the welfare of the body. He says there that they are in service to the saints. They've devoted themselves to that. They are people who are leading the church, and it is to ones such as this, ones that are like this in their maturity and in their devotion, they are worthy of the name that Paul gave to himself and Apollos back in chapter 3, verse 9. Fellow workers, laborers. We, says Paul, we, Apollos and myself, And others, too, who are mature and give their lives to this, we are fellow workers. It doesn't mean fellow workers with the whole church, fellow workers with one another, a fellowship of workers. Back in chapter 3, verse 9 is where he brings this out. And the language there is significant. You may recall, if you were here back then, significant for what he's teaching about the structure of the church. So I touch on this now here because Paul brings it up. He has we... Apollos and myself and others like us, in this case, Stephanus and company, we are fellow workers. We sow, we water, we fertilize, we tend the field, and you, church, are the field. There's a distinction there which is important. Now, are we all, are we all to be about building up the body of Christ? Absolutely. That's what all the stuff about the, the gifts were, were about in 12 and 13 and 14. We've all been given different gifts. We are to be about building up the one body of Christ. We all are ministers in that sense with a lowercase m. But in chapter 3, what Paul is, is delineating is there are ministers with a capital M who are the workers in the field distinct from the field. This is the church 
And these are the ministers. Very clear from that chapter. Very clear from this chapter. Because he says, once you've identified Stephanus and people like him, the church, different than them, the church is to, it says, subject yourselves to ones like this. These ones never subject themselves to the church. The church subjects themselves to the ministers like Paul and Apollos and other fellow workers, Stephanus and company. It's worth bringing up here once again at the end. Worth asking you. Has that fact come home to you? That the church has an authority structure. This is perhaps a particular point to make in a church like ours in which a congregation also has rights and responsibilities. But nonetheless, we stand under the Bible in which the, the Bible, and you could look at Hebrews chapter 13 and see the very same point. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. if you want to jot down and look at it later. The Bible establishes that this is not an everybody on the same level. There are ministers and a congregation beneath their authority. It says, subject yourselves to. Has that come home to you? You think of the church like that. Now, there's a guard, of course. You're only to subject yourselves to ones who are Pauline in their teaching and in their demeanor and their attitude. But that being said... The word subject yourself is pretty clear. It's worth bringing up. Do you view the church like that? But I only bring it up. I'm going to move on because Paul does. His main point in in surfacing this is just to give a little bit of support and to remind them of something he's already written about. That's not his main focus here, so it's not ours this morning either. Moving on. 17 to the end fits very nicely into the established literary form of a letter of that day. Every, every era has a way you write a letter, and this matches it. You may recall the beginning of the letter matched how you write a letter. Here's the end of the letter matching how you write a letter. It was very customary for an author to say something that he was thankful for that the audience of his letter had given him. And in this case, they have given him, if you will, the fellowship of these three guys. So he says, thank you, I've appreciated it. And then he moves to the greeting section. Sending all kinds of greetings from people in churches scattered all across different areas who all know of one another and care about this church in Corinth. And essentially they're saying, say hi to the Christians in Corinth for me. Give them a hug for me. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a a holy kiss. It's a sign of of union. We are in agreement. We are reconciled to one another. And so we kiss cheek to cheek. Shows we are one. You know, Give Aunt Sally a hug for me. It's essentially the, the end of the letter here. And then Paul takes up the pen himself. Up to this point, up to verse 21, he's had, as is customary, he had a secretary taking dictation, writing it all down. But here at the end, he picks up the pen himself. And often what the person chooses to add in their own handwriting has some special significance to it. No different here. He ends this letter on a powerful little note, because of how he once again refers to the book of Deuteronomy. You'll recall he's quoted Deuteronomy several times throughout this whole letter, and here at the end he finishes the letter in a way very similar to how Moses ended the whole book of Deuteronomy, reminding the people of God about the blessings and the curses. He's writing to, just like Moses was speaking to, a whole congregation of people who say, we are the Lord's. This letter is going to be read in the church. Everybody sitting there is going to say, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. And Paul, like Moses back on the banks of the Jordan River, says, okay then, this is what God speaks. And we will ask then, do you love the Lord your God? Do you? We'll know by how you respond to this. Here it is, laid out in front of you. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do you, in the end, love yourself? 
will know by how you respond. And if in the end one says, no, then to the one who has no love for the Lord, anathema. That's the word there in 22. Let him be accursed. But on the contrary, if what comes out of you in response to what the Lord has said, if what comes out of you is, come Lord, maranatha, you know that word. The words are right there next to the text. Anathema maranatha. And a similar beat to them. If what comes out of you in response to this word is, come Lord, then the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Blessing. He finishes on this final note. Do you love him or not? Are you in or are you out? My love be with you all. I love you all. And I sincerely hope you turn to him. Amen. That's how the letter ends. Obviously a bunch of stuff that's here and there, a little bit of details being polished off. But as I said, I'm going to focus in on verses 13 and 14 and help us to close on this main point this morning. Here's, the, here's my main point for this morning from 13 and 14. God has called us to a life of loving, faithful struggle. God has called us to a life of loving, faithful struggle. Are you in or out? Are you in or out? I'm just going to break that into two pieces. I'm going to make two points that are disproportionate. The first one is much longer than the second one. Just so you know. You're watching the clock and I'm not done with the first point yet. The second one is much shorter. But here's the first observation I'm going to make. The Christian life is one of faithful struggle. We're called to, God calls His people to a life of faithful struggle. Faithfulness to God amidst struggle. And I say struggle amidst struggle because this life is one of war. We exist. You've got to realize this. We exist. We live on a battlefield. We live in the middle of a war. Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6 and clarifies it's not against other people. It's a spiritual war. He uses actually many of the same terms from Ephesians 6 in 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at them some weeks past. We are at war against spiritual forces out there and spiritual forces working their way into here and attacking us even in our very fallen natures. The war is, is in my chest as well as out there. We are at war, and it's a very serious war. There's a lot at stake here. It's a battle for, for Christians. If you're a Christian, it's a battle for you to hold on to God and not be, as you are constantly tempted to be, and not be turned away from Him and turned back to your own resources, the things you can hold in your own hands. This To, to turn away dishonors God, but Christian... We must realize to turn away hurts you deeply. It is not purely a honor God like I'm supposed to or dishonor Him like I'm not supposed to. It's honor God where my life is found or, or not honor Him where my life is destroyed. Christian, it says that Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And if he can't have you permanently, he will have as much of you as he possibly can. To your detriment. That's the war going on inside of your chest and every day you walk through life. But there's a war to, at another level too. Verse 22 touches on it. Some, even among the ranks of the church, who call themselves believers will be so attacked and so led astray and so drawn into the things they can grab and the things they can touch to find life there that they, in the end, will be found to have no part in God at all and they will perish. People in the church. And do not say, church, you realize this is written to a church. People sitting in pews in a church are going to read this. So do not say, I'm a Christian, that can't happen to me. 
The whole point is that we shall see if you are a Christian by how you respond to what God has said. Do not be like a soldier who says, since we're talking about war here, do not be like a soldier who says, I am an elite soldier with elite training. Those peasants with guns can't get me. It's folly. Rather, you should say, I will take my elite training and all the preparation that I have been given, empowered with, and I will conduct myself in such a way that those peasants with guns can't get me. That shows what you actually are as you employ it. And that's what keeps you safe. Use the tactics, the training, the equipping that you've been given. And for us as Christians, soldier, and in this war, every man, woman, boy, and girl is a soldier. For us, what we are to do is in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 has four commands in it. Four commands. What we're going to do is walk through them. The first one, be watchful. The word itself is obviously what it means. Watch, observe, and look out for something. And often the Bible we're told to, to watch for the coming of Christ. But even in those contexts where we are watching for the coming of Christ, we are also to be watching for the schemes of our enemy to be watching for the upcoming threat and attack. And the whole point of, of watching is that the attack's not going on at the moment, but you're watching for where it might come from. You've probably seen some of the footage. I've seen all kinds of footage from the current engagements in Afghanistan and Iraq. I remember seeing a picture of some of guys on a little outpost on the top of a high mountain with a magnified telescope watching a road way down there that was so small it looked like a little pencil line. And they just sit up there all day and they watch that road. Watching for the guy to walk out on the road with a little bomb probably and say, nobody, I don't see anybody, and place the bomb and not notice that way up on the hill over there, you can't even see him with the naked eyes. Somebody who just said, I saw that and we'll take care of it. Or in our modern era, it's actually looking through the lens of a drone and the guy's sitting in an office in New Mexico watching the road in Afghanistan. Watching. Vigilant. There's nothing going on at the moment, but he's watching. Where is the attack? Where does the, the clever enemy who thinks he knows my weak spot, where is he preparing to assault me? I'm watching. It's just a, a call from Paul to diligence in the time when you think nothing's going on. Because something's always going on. You're being prepared, set up, watch. So in our setting, do you know your weak spots? And do you watch them? Do you know, do you realize, have you seen where the snares get laid in front of you and you consistently step into them? Maybe you can detect it by noticing what, what makes me angry? What makes me afraid? What happened right before I lashed out at so-and-so? Maybe you can see some of what's going on in your life by, by observing the responses, the reactions. Do you watch others for their good? Not to judge them, but for their good. Because Paul also calls elders in the church in particular, Acts 20, to watch out for wolves among the flock. Are you watching for others' good? Watching their weak spots? Watching where they're going to step into a trap? Watch. Our great problem is that we don't pay attention to ourselves until we are in the midst of trouble. Watch beforehand. I have realized this in my life. I, I've just recently, my, my knee rehab has taken me to the gym. I am now a member of a, of a gym. I can't believe that. I have realized that for some reason, a lot of people don't manage to work out without wearing almost no clothing. You've been to a gym and noticed this? 
I have no idea why that is. I thought that resistance was the whole point. But I need to strip down so that I can lift weights. I don't get that. Seems like other people, that's how it works. And, I, and I've noticed, I need, I need to watch what I'm watching as I'm running on the treadmill with 25 minutes and nothing to do but just look around. I've become aware of us of a great big snare laid out in front of me. And, I, and I'm not trying to, to say that I've never stepped in the snare. That's part of how I became aware that it existed. Do you know where the snares are in front of you and your loved ones? Are you, are you attacking your life or are you reacting to it? Watch. You have an enemy who hates you. He's not just passive and neutral. Hates you. Seeks to destroy you. Watch. It's very helpful for keeping soldiers alive to watch where the attack might be coming. Well, paired with that, the second one is stand firm in the faith. You watch, you see where the attack is going to come, and maybe, maybe this is helpful to think about. These terms that lend themselves towards a, a military vigilance maybe drop out of current military setup to an ancient setup. Apart from arrows and javelins, warfare happened about this far apart from your enemy. You know, about, about the length of a sword or an axe. Very physical, very upfront, personal. So you turn, you see where the attack is coming from, you turn to face it, and now you have to stand as it rushes at you. It's going to come to right there. Stand. And stand firm against the attack. Stand firm, importantly, in the faith. That is, we're not talking about a physical battle here. This is all metaphor. But you need to stand firm as the enemy rushes at us by clinging to the truth of this faith. Truth of the gospel. The message about how God saves and what God has saved me from and to and how sure that saving is. Stand firm in it. So I stand firm, Christian, and I plead with you, stand firm in the certainty that God loves you such that He sent Christ His Son to get you. And you need to stand in that against the attack that tries to persuade you that God is against you. You see those two things there. The attack that may come against you is the first one in the Bible. God is not out for your good. That, that's the heart of Satan's attack. Page 2 of the Bible. God is not out for your good. He's out to get you. Stand firm against that attack in the... No, 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 no. This God loves me such that He sent His Son to save me from me. And I hold on to that even when what He requires of me or what He commands of me seems hard. Stand firm in that. Stand in the truth that at the cross Christ died to pay for your sin and remove it off of you and therefore you are not under condemnation. Stand in that against the attack that says you are a loser, worthless. I was watching last night TV. Have you seen the, the, uh, the smoking ads, the, the stop smoking ads that are on TV? There's some hotline in Utah to help you stop smoking. One of those ads has the guy, he's trying to stop smoking, and he says, I'm such a loser. And that struck me because I don't know if you face that trying to stop smoking, but have you faced that in your struggle against sin? I'm such a crappy Christian. Maybe you don't use the word crappy. I tried to use as strong of a word as I could in public. <laughs> Do you, you feel that way about yourself? I'm, uh, what in the world am I? Who you are, that's the attack. You're worthless. The attack, you stand against that and say, 
by grace. I stand in grace and I am not a condemned one. I am not a worthless one. I am not garbage. Am I a sinner who needs to change? You probably are that too, yes. But a dearly loved sinner on whom God is working to change you, He's redeemed you, Christian. He's put on you His hand of love, not a hand that is heavy with wrath. You stand in the truth of the cross and say, the cross means something in my life. It means He's removed me from wrath and I will never, ever go there. By grace, I am what I am. I am a sinner, yes, but I am a saved one and a loved one. And you stand... You stand in the promises that have been poured onto you because it's not just that He saves you and then leaves you. He has saved you and has poured on you blessing upon blessing to get you ready for the blessings upon blessings. You are most fortunate. Stand in that when the attack comes. If you want a decent life, you better go get it yourself. That's a lie. It's a lie. So you stand against that by saying, in fact, no, I have been given life. And when this perishable fades, I will find, oh, I will find life when I put on the imperishable. You stand in the gospel and you preach it to yourself and you preach it to your friends when you see them about to step into a snare. You see them under attack. And you act like men. Which might seem odd to those of us who are women and girls. So we need to understand this word. And it's really just a word. The whole phrase is really just, just one word. And it has as its root the word man. Which tells us something about both men and women. Maybe a word that we might be able to use in English to kind of help understand it is how we have words like manly or or manhandle. Those words tell us something about men, and they also tell us something about women, because women, and I, I think of, I've seen young girls dealing with babies, and you say, don't manhandle them to, to your daughter, and she doesn't say, I can't, I'm not a man. No, man. We understand what manhandle means. It's something about how men handle things carelessly, and women can do it too. Well, this word tells us something about men, about masculinity. What it means is courage and bravery. Something core in masculinity about courageous, brave living that women can do too. Because throughout literature, this word is also used to apply to things women do. So it's both. It's not only men. But what it's saying is that this is not the time for the softer, gentler, more feminine virtues to come to the fore. This is the time for courage. You're watching. You see an attack. You have to stand as that guy with an axe rushes right up at you. Running away seems wise. No. Stand. You stand in the gospel. What requires courage? Physically, obviously, I understand what requires courage there, but leave that metaphor and come to what requires courage to stand in the faith? Well, to mix metaphors a little bit, this standing firm involves so much laying down. Think about what it really means to stand like this. It means I have to lay down my rights. I have to lay aside my expectations, my comfort, my security. I have to lay aside the the very reasonable evaluation of the circumstances in hand and believe in something that I can't see. I have to lay down my my pride, 
and embrace humility. I'm supposed to to lay aside the, the very reasonable expectation to be respected and embrace a chapter 2 fear and trembling as I talk about the cross. And to embrace a chapter 4 scum of the earth like a man led in to be condemned and killed. Embrace that and lay aside. What's going to be left to me if I lay all that aside? What am I going to have? I'm going to lay all that down. I'm, I'm going to be left with suffering and hardship and shortage and pain and humiliation. Who wants that? That's frightening. And I think that if, if we were honest with one another, and, and maybe it's not just an honest thing, maybe it's, just, maybe it's an exploring it and getting in touch with it and then being honest, but I think that a lot of Christian sin, and, and I certainly know it's true in my life, a lot of Christian sin is not driven by, I refuse to do that because I don't want to. I think a lot of Christian sin is driven by, what will happen to me if I do that? Fear. What will there be for me? What will happen to me? If, if we're honest, we, a prime drive in humans is self-preservation. We are, we are driven to that, to the preserving of our own security first, and then the, the preserving of the life that we're trying to build. I notice this in my life when, when I'm presented with some opportunity to give some money. I, I rarely say, no, I'm going to keep my money. It's not like that. It's more of a, if I give this away, what will happen to me? If, if I give this away, then I won't have that money in my bank account. And I had a plan for as to how that was going to provide this, uh, protect. What will happen? Fear. We are prone to self-preservation. And self-preservation makes the most sense with us with the things we can see doesn't make any sense with the things we can't see. Frankly, most of us are too scared to live in chapter 2 or chapter 4. Is that true of you? I don't expect you to nod your head, but think about it. It looks like we're leaping off a cliff. And the only way we know how to manage our lives is by holding on to them. That I know. This I don't. I have no idea what will happen when I do this. And frankly, I'm afraid of it. And so he says, command, man up. Be courageous. Stand against all the odds in the face of what seems like an insurmountable attack. Stand courageously. Which is a command, but that doesn't really answer my problem. Because the problem was with being courageous. So he gives us one more command, the fourth one. Be strong. which in English sounds just like all the other commands, but it's a little different. In English, it would be clumsy to translate it to reveal something. So it ends up kind of hidden. But what's, what's not revealed very clearly in English is that it's passive. Maybe we could say, be of strength. Be characterized by strength. Be strengthened. Which should make us ask, from where does the strength come? Can you guess? Bless God there's a strong one, and bless God it's not you or me. But He lives in you. You see this list of commands, and the last one is be strengthened. As Paul prays in Ephesians 3, using the same word, he prays in Ephesians 3, be strengthened with power. Good, that's what I need. 
through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. Who strengthens? I'm supposed to stand firm in the Gospel, brave and courageous, but I'm, I'm weak and afraid. Be strengthened. Who, who is this? It's God the Spirit who lives inside of you, who will strengthen you. It's like He's your personal trainer taking you to the gym every other day so you have a rest day in between. But He takes you to the gym every other day and pushes and pushes and pushes you to strengthen you. How does He do that? Well, Ephesians tells us, give us a little clue, be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He strengthens you by strengthening your faith in Christ. Here's, here's how this works. He takes you to the gym to work on your faith in Christ and maybe to keep the image maybe on one machine what he's working on is the love of god for you in sending christ 15 reps of that the love of god this is a god of love let me work that into you and show you this is a god of love who did not need to do anything but has he has intervened in a dramatic way to show his love for you and to show that he's a god of love okay and then the next one over he moves you on to show you the absolute trustworthiness of christ And he shows you through life and through Scripture promise and fulfillment. Promise kept. Always there. Never leaving nor forsaking you. A sure Savior. And the next one over, he shows you the authority of Christ. Commanding demons and nature. Commanding every single thing that there is. He is the King. And he is trustworthy. And he loves you. Rest. And what happens is he layers on there. Bit by bit, the muscle is built. He layers on there. This is who Jesus is. This is who Christ is. This is who he is for you. And what happens inside of you is, yes. 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 Bless God, yes. You are strengthened. And Christ dwells down deeply in your heart by that faith. That's how you are strengthened by the Spirit's work in you. The Spirit's not trying to point to Himself. He's trying to point to Christ and grow in you trust of Him. And as Christ-centeredness bulks up in your heart, it squeezes out everything else. There's only so much room in there. We... No, we will be attacked. Watch for it. And stand in the gospel bravely, courageously, crying out to God the Spirit, help me, help me, help me. Show me Christ. Grow in me. Trust in Him so that I will bravely stand and not abandon Him. Those are the four commands of of verse 13. And they are only as, as good as... You will obey them. There's probably not much new there that, that I've said. You've probably heard these things before. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? A great place to start would be God the Spirit. God, will you take me? Take me. Show me Christ and show me where I veer away from Him into me. That would be a great place to start. Because that will accomplish two things at once. Alert you to who Jesus is and alert you to where some of the traps are. God, will you show me Christ and show me where I veer away from Him? Start there. But this has perhaps had a, intentionally so, has had a a hard edge to it. Something hard here. And the next verse belongs with it. Right in line with it. Verse 14, that takes us to the second point. And this one, as I said, is shorter. 
shorter but not less important. In, in fact, if we don't get this next point, as chapter 13 taught, we're going to end up just clanging cymbals, nothing. The next point is shorter but not less important. The Christian life is one of love. The Christian life is one of love. Such an important point in this book, there shouldn't be any surprise that, that it ends with that. The very last verse, verse 24, My love with you all in Christ, even with those who don't like me. Half the church doesn't like Paul, but I love you all, he says. Verse 22, he calls for them to display covenant faithfulness by love of the Lord. All the relationships between the churches and the people here display love, but of course it's commanded in verse 14. And it is a command, it's the fifth one. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Which coming on the heels of everything that I've just said, this fifth command should make us to realize, oh, if I were to be watchful and to stand firm in, in believing and trusting in all of those gospel truths and courageously hoping in them, but have not love, nothing. Meaningless. This must be, this must be characteristic of the Christian. It is not one, it's not verse 13 or verse 14. It's both together. And a caution, don't think of them as tempering one another. Don't think of it as 13's got the hard stuff softened by love. Don't think of it like rhubarb is really tart, so if you put a bunch of sugar in there, it counteracts it. Then you can handle it. And that's why, that's why only, anybody likes rhubarb. We like rhubarb-flavored sugar. And, and I love rhubarb. But that's what it is. That's not, that's not right here. We should instead, if you still think of an example here, we should think of it like table salt. N-A-C-L. You can't get table salt without the N-A. You don't get more C-L-ish table salt. You get something totally different. You get chloride. Chloride, chlorine, which is it? Chloride, I think. It's not table salt anymore. If you take out love, you actually don't have verse 13. You don't have a faithful struggle in holding to God against the world. You've left off love, and God is love. And if you leave off the verse 13, you don't have love, actually. You've abandoned the truth of the gospel. These things both must go together because both of them together are reflection of God. Chapter 13 says that love delights in the truth. Maybe that can be a summary verse to think about. The two together, love and truth together. That is faithfulness in struggling to hold fast to God. One or the other isn't. In all things, church, love. It is a tender-hearted faithful struggle that we are called to. It is an other-centered, God-centered, and not self-centered struggle that we are called to. It is a struggle that desires to see God exalted and others around me drawn to Him. It's love. And this is one of my concerns for us. I know I, I, because of where I sit in relation to the congregation, I, I often hear more complaints than positive things. But one of the consistent complaints I hear, and so I, I take it there is some grain of truth in it, is something that I might attach to lovelessness. Sometimes it's, I've been here for X years, I don't have any friends. Sometimes it's, I get so frustrated with so-and-so who seems so concerned about truth and watching out for my snares 
that he hammers me with it all of the time. Now, I plenty realize that that could say as much about the person who's talking to me as it could about the other person. I get that. Believe me. But it is one of my concerns about us as a body. So I just plead with you as an individual, maybe step away from thinking about everybody and think about you. Do you hold 13 and 14 both? And maybe what I'm saying is I'm leaning especially on 14, while acknowledging you can't have one or the other. Leaning here now on 14. Do you hold 14? Everything done in love. It is a truth-saturated love. It is a God and God's glory-saturated love. But it is love. It is concern for the other and a willingness, even yea, a desire to lay aside me for the sake of Him in you. Him in you. Is that you? The point of the very end of the book, the part that Paul wrote with his own hand, is essentially... This is the word of the Lord. Are you in or out? So as I walk through 13 and 14, which fairly well captures the book, not every detail, of course, but the thrust of the book, this is the word of the Lord. We be watchful, that we stand strong in the gospel as Paul describes it, not the gospel that you've heard somewhere else and you own. The gospel as Paul describes it. You stand in it and believe it tenaciously, courageously, trusting and depending on God the Spirit to strengthen your hands in the fight, loving or not. One path leads to life, one path leads to death. Paul says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I love you and I plead with you. Heed my word to you, says Paul. Pursue him and walk with him and lay down your life for him and for him in others. Amen. Let me pray. God Almighty, will you win your people to yourself, please? Most here in the room, we know you. And I pray you would win us to you. And I pray particularly, would you touch the area of fear? We are to be a people who have no fear of any condemnation because there isn't any from you. To be a people who have no fear of abandonment because you never forsake us. To have no fear of loss because you have given us everything and life with Christ is full of gain. We are afraid. And I pray God strengthen us. Strengthen us to believe and strengthen us to stand and strengthen us to hope in You. Help my brothers and my sisters here, I pray. And Lord, for those who here who don't know You, maybe even don't know that they don't know You, would You call them? Would You speak and awaken? That rests in Your hand and I pray, do it, please. Call us, your church, to yourself and call us to be a people who live faithful to you, who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. 
by your Spirit, make us a people like that, I pray. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, our coming King. Maranatha. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.